Hello and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for today, Wednesday, February the 15th. It's National Gumdrop Day if you uh, need a little bit of sugar. It's also National Singles Awareness Day and National Roses Are Back to Normal Price Day. My name is Tom Hollingsworth and uh, I know that you heart me and my co-host Stephen Foskett, but we've got somebody filling in for Stephen today and that would be my good friend, Mr. John Meyer. John, welcome to the show. Hey, Tom, thanks for having me on. As everybody knows, or hopefully you know that my name is John Meyer. I'm Chief Content Creator at Meyer Media and happy to be here on The Rundown. Well, we're very happy to have you along because we have a lot of great stories that we want to get to, um, some interesting news, some announcements, and let's just jump right in because the first one actually has to do with our friends over at Amazon. The U.S. Department of Defense relies on modern military applications that are data heavy and depend on low latency to enable critical communications and coordination in the field. You know, all the things that a military would like to do. Accessing, processing, and sharing that data at the tactical edge is becoming more increasingly more essential as we move on. And uh, Amazon has announced an AWS modular data center for the U.S. Department of Defense joint warfighting cloud capability, which you may recall from all of the stories that we uh, did about the demise of the JEDI contract. Well, JWCC is something that has grown out of that. John, is the AWS cloud becoming more and more mobile, like we can finally deploy it all over the world, wherever the uh, soldiers of America are fighting for freedom and all the other things? Tom, I'll tell you what, with the addition of the AWS MDC, and I think there's a miss here because it should be like AWS MC, like hosting a data center. Sorry for the pun. But thinking about that, being able to have a data center wherever you're at and remotely and utilizing the AWS services are very key. So think about it, AWS released Outpost. Now you can have a rack within your data center, AWS local zones, a local AWS infrastructure, relatively low latency closer to your existing data center. Well, on the 13th, AWS announced the availability of AWS modular data center for the US Department of Defense. And it makes it easier for DOD agencies to deploy modular data centers with AWS infrastructure in limited locations. When you say limited locations, you know, getting to the public cloud in these remote locations are very hard to do, even utilizing some of the satellite capabilities that are out there. Having this infrastructure close and available to you is making it key for some of those that are out there in the def defense. Managing it is easy with every unit and expandable. If you haven't seen a picture of it yet, it looks like two shipping containers that are easily expandable depending on where you're at. Now, I'll tell you what, you can proactively monitor these and manage them using any of the management systems and capabilities available to you, and you have the option for satellite. I think the AWS MDC is very key for the US Department of Defense, and it allows them to actually connect and go back to uh, GovCloud. This is really cool that they added it, and now they did release it on the 13th, the day before Valentine's Day, and it was during one of the public sector summits. So let's talk about if you're moving off of Oracle's database offering and you're worried that you have to encrypt, then this new story should be of interest to you. EDB announced this week that they have released transparent data encryption for PostgreSQL. This block level encryption offering allows databases to be encrypted before they've written back to disk to ensure the data is secure at all times. Now, integration with the public cloud key management system ensures that only authorized users and applications can see the database files. Tom, really, what's the ultimate goal for offering this encryption for Postgres? 
um, ultimately the goal is to end Larry Ellison's burgeoning uh, uh, supervillain empire. Um, I only say that tongue in cheek just a little bit. I actually sat down with uh, Joseph DeBreeze, who was uh, in charge of a lot of the development on this uh, yesterday, and I had a great chance to talk to him a little bit about it. And basically what they're doing is they're taking transparent data encryption and they're adding that as an offering to their version of Postgres, which they are, um, you know, it's a commercial uh, offering that they, you know, provide support for and everything like that. But one of the things that, that Joseph said is that on the roadmap, for a future release, they're looking at offering transparent data encryption with the open source version of Postgres, which I think is exciting because one of the things that you run into in these kinds of situations is you have all of this data that's stored on a public database. And let's be honest, Oracle is the biggest game in town, as much as it pains me to say that. But the way that you get people to stay there is either A, you make it so hard to move the data out that nobody wants to deal with it, or B, you give them features that they can't get anywhere else. And I think that data encryption is one of those features. And you may think to yourself, well, what's the big deal about encrypting all of the data? Well, obviously you don't work in the payment card industry. You don't work in healthcare or finance or anywhere else where there is a regulatory body that likes to come in every few months and go, ah, oh, you're not doing this right. Well, what EDB's goal is, is to reduce the friction of moving out of a system like Oracle and Oracle is the, one of the biggest uh, areas where they're seeing mass migration out of it and offer as much feature parity as possible to capture, you know, many of those folks. And when I say feature parity, I'm not kidding. According to Joseph, they've got like 98% feature parity right now. It's just these random corner cases of things like transparent data encryption, which, by the way, is different than some of the other solutions that you might see out there already, where it's like, oh, well, we'll just encrypt the entire file system on the server and then everything's encrypted. Yeah, you're right, it is until someone gets a hold of the key for the file system encryption and then they can just get in and see whatever they want. This is a separate level of encryption that's just for the database files, just for the blocks that are stored in the database. But what's exciting is, is that the transparent part means that you can encrypt it at rest in say, I don't know, an S3 bucket so that anybody who gets in from the outside who's not one of the authorized users in the KMS, even if they're able to lift it, it is in stored you know, with uh, reportedly AES-256, which is pretty, pretty good encryption. But that means that the applications and the users that need to access it in the KMS, they don't even see it as encrypted because the transparency just happens. So, you know, your authorized applications, your authorized developers, all of that other stuff can see it. And to me, that's exciting, not only because it means that we've added a layer of security to all of these things, but it also means that all of that work can trickle down into other areas that just kind of creates a rising tide effectively so that everybody gets better. And I'm not gonna lie, the more people that are using Postgres and developing and making it a better database management solution, and the less people who are making Larry Ellison sailboat payments this month are, you know, that, that's a win-win for everybody in the industry. So I'm very excited to see kind of where EDB is gonna take this uh, based on the conversation that I had. I think that it's gonna go quite a ways and uh, I can't wait to see what's next. All right, well, since it is the day after Valentine's Day, we do have to talk a little bit about a, a breakup because uh, the end, or should I actually say the edge, is here for our venerable Internet Explorer version 11. Um, you may recall Internet Explorer as the source for an antitrust lawsuit from the US government in the 90s, and as well as a, a reasonable facsimile of a web browser. 
but unfortunately, according to our friends over at Microsoft, it has now reached the end of support. There will be no more updates. There will be no more patches because the future of the web, according to Redmond, is in the Chromium-based Edge browser, which is built into Windows 10 and Windows 11. Um, Microsoft is breaking up with IE the day after Valentine's Day, but John, could you imagine a web without Internet Explorer? What are my grandparents going to do now? Uh, move over to Yahoo. Uh, so talking about it, you know, IE has a near place to everybody's heart who started out in technology and was browsing the web. I mean, IE was the go-to factor when using IIS and going all the way up to IA, what are we at, IIS 6. Now, just don't quote me on that. But Microsoft was anticipating this in the long term. And 12 plus years ago, they actually created with their server, what was it, 2012 edition Edge. Edge was slow to take off and look to be jumping over it. Yes, I've got plenty of dad jokes after Valentine's Day. So, Tom, I hope you're laughing, or at least one person is of this. With IE, actually, what's happening is they're permanently disabling its out of support for the legacy browser. And when I say legacy browser, it's about time it's actually come to it. Um, they're trying to improve the user experience. They're transitioning over to the new Edge browser, but wait, there's more. Uh, they want to transition over to that, and it applies to certain versions of Windows 10. I don't even know what version we're on now. I, I'm sorry, I'm a Mac user, but I know that people are on different versions of 10. With the knowing, growing number of websites that are no longer supporting IE, yes, if you build a website today, it is not a requirement to support IE. Because here's the actual key factor that I want to share with everybody some stats. At one point, IE owned 95% of the browser environment and the market, okay? This was way back in 2003. 20 years later, it's come to an end. And I think it's due that, you know, I, I think it's fitting that it happened after or during Valentine's Day that they are breaking up with it and moving towards their others. But to add on to that, Microsoft is actually integrating or trying to push for the integration with the new AI boosted Bing search. And if everybody remembers Bing, it feels like Bing is coming. Wasn't Bing one of their actually search functions then moved to Edge? I, I, I can't get it right, but they want to integrate it into Edge as well. So the reins of control for IE are no longer and have come to an end. And they're moving towards edge, but we'll see how well that does in the future. All right, Tom, I think our next topic that we're going to talk about is Suzy launches ATIP for modernizing comms and networks. Now, Tom, I know this network is near and dear to your heart. So I think this article is fitting for you. Suzy announced this week that they're adding support for building future-proof telecom infrastructure built around open frameworks like OpenRAM. The Aptive Telco Information Platform, or AITP for short, I don't know how, it's, it's a tongue twister, leverages technology from Rancher Labs to create a modern or modular platform that can adapt to changing needs of the telecom providers. This modular system is built specifically to address provider needs with Kubernetes pods, which are very key and built to serve those requirements. ATIP can be rolled out quickly and managed from a central location to ensure that everything is up to date and operational. Tom, is this solution going to be ease for some of the adoption issues we've been seeing with smaller providers? 
Boy, I hope so, because one of the problems that we're running into, you know, obviously the, the big providers, the AT&Ts, the Verizons, even the T-Mobiles of the world, they kind of have their thing that they do, but they're not the only game in town. I remember back when I worked as a VAR, um, I worked in a, a kind of a regional area that had like a local cellular provider. And boy, they were so happy when they figured out how to like turn on LTE. Like, like that was their big deal. They had to send a guy to school for like, you know, a month to be able to enable that. So sometimes we lose track of that. But what's more important is when you look at the fact that, you know, we're all IT people, right? We work in the enterprise and we're, we're past this idea of monoliths, right? Like we don't do that. Go find a telco tower. That whole tower is a monolith. Like it is, everything is integrated. Everything is wired and everything is specialized. And why is having specialized equipment a problem in 2023? Um, hold on, Magic 8 Ball says supply chain. Yeah, that's right. You can't get those chips right now. And so there's been this movement for the last few years through uh, technologies like OpenRAN to allow the software that runs these towers to run on x86 or commodity hardware. <clears throat> Sounds super exciting, right? I would want to do that. The problem is, is that you're doing the old thing on new stuff. Why can't I do new things on new stuff? Well, that's where projects like SUSE's, you know, ATIP come into play. They're taking what you're doing with these base stations and with this, all this telecom infrastructure and they're modularizing it to run on Kubernetes thanks to Brancher Labs and some other fun, cool stuff that they're doing. But more importantly, they're changing the way that you look at the consumption model for these services, if you will. Well, that sounds an awful lot like edge computing, doesn't it? It, it really should, because what they're doing is by offering all of these compute resources right there at the base station edge, they can serve services with super low latency to mobile providers that are connected to those towers. And in order to do that, you need a fast, easily manageable framework. Well, that sounds an awful lot like Kubernetes to me. So by offering this to providers, and maybe they're not targeting, you know, the big nationwide telcos right now, maybe it's just the smaller ones. They're going to provide a massive amount of value add to the ISP. Why would I choose to use someone who has, you know, dodgy coverage and bad customer service when my local provider can now give me a lot of extra features that I really would use. And for them, it's very cost effective because it um, you know, runs on commodity hardware, has centralized management. I don't have to send a tech out there every time I need to make one little change. I think that projects like this are going to ultimately end up creating a massive amount of disruption in the in the industry. And yeah, I know we've been talking about edge computing for a couple of years now and what it can do, but this is the gap between the pie in the sky ideas that we see and the actual implementation of it and how it can offer huge benefits. So I'm gonna keep an eye on this. I really genuinely hope that this takes off the way that people want it to, because I think ultimately what's going to happen is that a lot of companies are going to um, adopt this and create their own little offerings that are valuable to their customer base. And, you know, with a name like SUSE behind it, it, it can't be bad because I've been a SUSE Linux fan for a number of years. All right, um, John, we had a big release this week that I think has some interesting uh, backstory to it because uh, Backup Giant and Frequent Field Day presenter Beam announced their new version 12 software. And, you know, it's going to be able to back up to a variety of targets um, as one backup software should. But one of the things that does have the industry a little bit excited is the fact that you can now back up to a MinIO object store. 
instead of backing data to your Amazon S3 buckets, why not just change the S3 target on your system to back up to MinIO, which is something you can run on-prem. And I know that this is exciting for a lot of people because some organizations still don't allow you to back up to the cloud. And if you are worried about whether or not that's going to take a performance hit, you probably shouldn't because during their testing, they observed 12, 12 gigabytes per second of throughput, which is one of the fastest backup targets that they've ever tested. So they're very excited about that, both Veeam and MinIO. But John, you know, so, as someone with a little bit of a storage background and, and kind of riding the wave of what this looks like in the future, why would you want to have an on-prem object storage or backup target for a software like Veeam? One of the key things that you want to look at, so Veeam, congratulations on your announcement yesterday. I was actually watching the launch that was happening and working closely with them on some of it. But to have your object storage locally next to, say, your application or on-premise, right? So a lot of folks have not actually migrated or moved to the cloud completely, and applications are still sitting there within their data center. If you want to back up to S3, you have the latency across it. You're only actually as good as your internet connection, right? So it's got to traverse over and come back. There's costs and associating with that. But if you're backing up locally, it's the latency. So the demonstration that happened for uh, MinIO is actually one of the fastest directed targets available for being backup and replication. Not only that, MinIO performs capacity in both of the performance and the capacity tier before, before it was only the capacity tier that was available to it. This simplifies your whole entire backup architecture operations and decreases the potential for failure and error. When you talk about failure and error for your backup and your replication, remember the bits got to go across. They got to make sure that they're valid and correct and that everything's got to be stored. What if you roll it off into Glacier and then you got to move it back? But if you have it locally, the latency for the backup is very critical that's happening, okay? So, Tom, you mentioned that it was measured to throughput with backup speeds of 12,000 MBs or actually 12 gigabytes going through the vSphere cluster to their actually MinIO cluster. And this was actually very critical in utilizing vSphere. But it's really actually simplifying the vSphere host and would have increased their throughput and their latencies. And, you know, I... I like this. I like this article. I like what they've actually done for it and what they're testing and benchmark. I think it provides huge flexibility, not only for the storage, the read writes that happen for your application. Remember, if your read or your writes are slow, your user performance and experience is bad. Things will slow uh, the latency, the backup. If you're going through a number of nodes for your backup, so in traditional data center thing, you have a node that writes out to different storage or disk, and depending on the size of those, you can actually get a buffer credits that are happening. And this will actually cause bad application performance. So congratulations to MinIO on the performance and Veeam for their release yesterday. All right, well, John, we had one more story that we wanted to take a look at. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> Well, let's be fair. Uh, it's time to update your iPhones, your iPads, your Macs, your iMacs, your anything running Mac OS because, uh, well, yeah, there's another security vulnerability out. It's actually a vulnerability in the WebKit engine that runs in Safari. So Apple has been scrambling to uh, release some security fixes for pretty much everything that's affected. And in the note, the ominous, actively exploited tag 
tells you that, well, let's be honest, if you haven't already updated your watch, your phone, your tablet, your laptop, your Mac studio, whatever you're using, you really should go out and do that as soon as possible. Um, but the interesting thing is the fact that, you know, Apple is publicly releasing this. It's kind of in an off cycle. Um, it's a question of how long they've known about it, how quickly they were able to, uh, to patch it, create a fix for it. But John, why is it that we're starting to see more and more of these patches? Is it a bad code quality issue? Or is it the fact that uh, companies are getting to these potentially exploitable problems quicker and getting the patches out before people can actually do something with them? Tom, I'm gonna to say it's a mixture of both. And the reason I say that is I think we're trying to go as fast as possible and release new features and updates and stay with it and the the code review. Now, Apple has been very, <laughs> excuse me, very adamant about producing great quality, great code and releases. In fact, I trust Apple a lot more with my devices and my updates and security. But the question that you asked was, is this something they knew about or did it just come up? For me, I think it just came up or it's been it's been out there and somebody identified that it's been widely exploited and they wanna get a patch as quick as possible. This is critical for them to release. The tag that they indicated may have been actively exploited. That means, yes, it has, it means you need to go do this. And it's really around Safari. But if you're saying, well, well, wait a second, I use a different browser, I'm using Chrome or whatever on there. I hate to tell you, but all browsers on an iPhone are actually using Safari. It's just a wrapper around it. So you need to update no matter what. It's just the functionality of it. Now, the other part of that is attackers and everything are getting more and more sophisticated. They're finding out more and more vulnerabilities, applications that are being built. They're going really quick. Security should be job one in a functionality that you should make sure that everything is up to date and tied and patched as quick as possible. I think this is really critical. When Apple does release these rather for all their devices, I think you should evaluate and go through your normal update cycle, test, release, and make sure that it works out great depending on if you're a home user or a production user for it. But it's one thing that you should take seriously when it's released because you'd hate to be the person that is out there saying that you've been actively exploited because you didn't patch your system and Apple had a release for it. You know, I think what's interesting about this is the fact that, like you said, we are starting to see this kind of, of crazy rolling release cycle where features are announced but not enabled right away, where we're starting to try to get, you know, more functionality built into these devices. I mean, when you look at even just the iOS 16 release train, we're just going to we're going to focus on that one specific thing. You know, iOS 16 came out to support the launch of the new iPhone. Well, then iOS 16.1 came out that launched uh, support for some of the new features that were announced, but not actually like released at that time. Then, you know, you get to iOS 16.3. Well, what does 16.3 do? Well, it enables uh, new hardware when they release the new HomePod. But then you had really weird things like, oh yeah, we broke all the CD and DVD drives that connect to Macs in 16.3. So then we were like that stream, that fix had to be streamed in. And I, I get that that's like a big deal for, you know, companies like, oh, you know, we, we need to fix this. We need to get that done. By the way, the, the new patch fixes the CD, DVD drive. So you should probably go ahead and upgrade to it anyway, if you still have one of those. But I think the biggest problem is that the, the internal development teams inside of companies like Apple, Cisco, Dell, Microsoft, whomever it is, are constantly trying to add these new, you know, tentpole features. They're trying to find ways to provide extra value for customers. The attackers, on the other hand, don't give a crap. 
oh, great, there's a new feature. I don't care. I'm still working on this really weird, you know, like, you know, uh, compatibility mode issue for WebKit that would allow me to, you know, take remote control of your machine or something like that. Like they're hammering away at those things. So while the developers are focused on the future, the attackers are, develop are focused on, you know, like out of date compatibility mode issue things. Like look at Log LogForge. Like we're still dealing with uh, potential LogForge exploits a year plus on from when that was released. And so it's hard for developers to have the, the, the vision to look in both directions. And honestly, you don't know that something is exploitable until someone exploits it. And that's the race then. It's like when, when they get notifications that something has been actively exploited, obviously all they can do is patch it. And when you talk to companies like Google or Talos from Cisco or a lot of the other companies that kind of track these um, you know, vulnerabilities, they've effectively said that zero days cannot be stopped because by their very, very nature, nobody knows about them. But it, the key is not to you know, stop a zero day from happening. The key is to force the attackers to burn so many of the zero days to get access to some system that they've effectively priced themselves out of the market, if you want to think about it like that. So like, think about a, something like well, we've covered here on the rundown before, Pegasus. Pegasus used a number of vulnerabilities in Apple software in order to be able to get into the system and do all the wacky spy level stuff that they were doing. But as Apple found out about them, they started patching those holes in the system. So now if you want to use Pegasus again, now instead of using two of those vulnerabilities, maybe you have to use four or five or six. And as you burn through more of them and make them known, then what happens is, is that those doors close. So effectively the cost, if you will, to um, you know deploy your payload to a device triples. And I don't know about you, but if the cost for me to do something triples, I'm going to take a long, hard look at how I'm choosing to do it. And there's, or I'm going to have to raise prices to my customers. And I know it sounds weird to think about, you know, crime and malware and ransomware stuff as a business, but that's effectively how it's being run right now. And so if I can make it so obscenely expensive to do that, then maybe I'm going to put a lot of the smaller providers out of business. But that all kind of runs on that that dwell time cycle of we de we've detected an active exploit, we're rushing the patch out to make sure that it doesn't break anything, and then you have to deploy it. And that's why it's so important to kind of see notifications like this. Like we got no, I think we got word on Monday that the patch was live, and a lot of people are like, oh well, I don't know if I'm going to you know deploy it yet or not. The question shouldn't be whether or not you're going to deploy it. Like you absolutely should. The question is just how quickly can you get to it. And, you know, like my wife will not deploy a patch to her phone until I've told her that everything is okay because she's, she's had things that have gotten messed up before. But, you know, as soon as this came out and I downloaded it and checked it, I was like, yeah, yeah, you need to update this. So if you have that kind of sol solution in your office, in your organization, where you can deploy those patches quickly, verify that they don't have any problems and then get them out, you're effectively raising the cost of what it, it would take for an attacker to get in your organization. And that cannot be understated. Tom, I'm going to add on to that. I think you touched on one of the key uh, parts for companies, not only like Apple, Cisco, but anybody that's looking at their developers. You have a handful of developers. I can work on new features or I can work on the old features and patch them. Well, if nobody's touching them, I, I don't have time. I have to deploy out some new features as quick as possible because my customers are looking at, oh, well, I'll get to that. And things start trickling down where they're being exploited because nobody has time to work on those. Uh, releasing features before they're actually available. 
So, you know, what happens is a lot of developers will release support within another update for a feature that's up and coming. But here's the thing, what happens is they plan for all this and projects change, plans change, and all these features are still built into the code or never removed, never modified, and never updated. And now they're sitting there as old as it trickles down and those security flaws are available and others are taking advantage of those at those times. You gotta look at everything and, and the value of those and start cleaning up old code that's no longer needed as well. Remove some things that you don't, you're not worrying because it could create security loopholes in, you know, in the past. Absolutely. And we will definitely keep an eye on this as well as many other stories about uh, potential vulnerabilities and things like that here on the rundown. But we did wanna give you a little bit of an update on some of the cool stuff that we've got going on uh, around our group. Um, next week is an exciting week because it will be the very first Edge Field Day event. Uh, Stephen Foskett has got a great lineup of presentations that will be taking place out in Silicon Valley. You can find out more information if you head over to techfieldday.com. Just click on the link, the snazzy logo for uh, Edge Field Day and check it out. And then uh, just a couple weeks after that, in the first week of March, we're going to be having uh, Tech Field Day 27 with a special focus on CXL. Now, you've probably heard a lot about CXL probably wondering what it is. Um, maybe you're a listener of our great Utilizing CXL podcast series uh, that we also publish here at Gestalt IT. I highly recommend you check out Utilizing CXL and then make sure you mark your calendars for March 8th and 9th for Tech Field Day 27 with that special focus on CXL. If you want to get a list of all the cool stuff that we do at Field Day, make sure you head over to techfieldday.com and check out the lineup of events. Uh, John, what are some of the cool things that people should be taking a look at that you're doing? So some of the things you guys want to take a look at, you can head over to my YouTube channel. Uh, I am at John Meyer, J-O-N-M-Y-E-R. We're recreating compelling stories and humanizing the person, not only through a podcast, but we're also humanizing the person behind the brand. You know, people trust people and they want to hear their stories and compelling. So we, we create those podcasts. We also create customer case studies and hands-on workshops and tutorials. We enjoy those. You're gonna see us at a lot of events this coming year where they engage, where we're gonna interview you on site and talk about certain brands and awareness behind it. You can also follow me on LinkedIn, guess what? At John Meyer or Twitter, yes, Tom, we've discussed this. It's still around, it hasn't changed, at underscore John Meyer. So don't forget to take a look at us uh, everywhere. Follow us. Make sure that you want to engage on what's happening out there. Awesome. And if you want to engage with all the stuff that we do here on The Rundown, you can do that every Wednesday around 1230 Eastern Time. We publish the episodes on YouTube. We also publish the uh, story and show notes on our website at gestaltit.com. You can also search for uh, Gestalt IT Rundown in your favorite podcast application of choice if you prefer to listen to us on the go. Um, we will be back next week with more great stories from the world of enterprise IT. If you have something that you want us to take a look at, please make sure you tweet at Gestalt IT. Use the hashtag rundown and we'll take a look at it. But until next week, for myself and for John Meyer, as well as Stephen Foskett, thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you have an amazing day, a great week, and we will see you soon.